This is Relatively Prime. Movies in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. Here on Relatively Prime, we've discussed mathematical novels and poetry and music and even featured mathematical sketches, but we've yet to talk mathematical movies. We're going to rectify that right now, right here on this episode. I'm going to share with you a couple of interviews that I have done over the years with people who have made movies where mathematics is in many ways the star. First up, my conversation with the creators of the Flatland and Flatland Squared Sphereland animated movies, writer and director Dan O. Johnson and producer Seth Kaplan. But before diving in, here is a clip from Flatland Squared Sphereland. As well as the northern quadrant of Good morning, Hex. Good morning, Grandpa. And I'll fix now, our lunches. Here's today's circle axiom of the day. Ready? Configuration makes the man. Configuration, Configuration makes, makes the man. Did you memorize your laws of inheritance? I sure did, Grandpa. Isosceles triangles have baby equilateral triangles. Equilateral triangles have baby squares. Squares have pentagons. Pentagons have hexagons like me. And each new generation gets one new side. Until they get so many sides, they look like a circle and become a priest. Everybody knows that. I started our interview by asking Seth and Dano how they came to make a movie about Flatland. Sure. Well, I, um, both Dano and I had read the book in high school. And I initially had the thought while well, I was a film student at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, and I was studying producing there. And uh, while I was there, you know, what, what people often ask what a producer does. And uh, the quick answer to that question is that a producer is someone who develops a property into a motion picture. And so properties can be anything. That, they could be a script. It could be a TV show. It could be a comic book. And as a broke film student, I didn't have the money to go license, you know, a Batman comic book or a famous TV show. So what I did is I went to the books that I already owned that were in the public domain. And I actually remember pulling out a box of books, and, and the thinnest book in the stack on the top was Flatland. And so when I began to read it, I remembered I'd had to read it two years in my high school math class about how it excited me to add imagination into mathematics. And Dana was someone who I'd worked with. We both had a, had a past of working in the online learning field. And so when I began speaking about it with Dano, his excitement for the book and being a huge fan, and that's kind of where the project began to grow from. Yeah, I mean, uh, when Seth brought it up, I, I remember... I was first exposed to the concept of Flatland on Carl Sagan's Cosmos. He kind of walks you through the idea of going to a lower dimension, the second dimension, to understand how higher dimensions could work. And I thought it was a really exciting concept. I'd, I'd been animating, like he said, in the e-learning world and doing some of my own little comedy shorts. But the idea, my dream was always to do something educational, and Flatland seemed like a perfect fit. Since I was a 2D animator, 
it would uh, it would work really well designing the two dimensional world. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still so proud that uh, what we did is being shown in schools all over the world. Was that the uh, the intention of of these films, which which by the way are in around 35 minutes or so, I believe. Uh, was that was that your basic intention? Was that these were going to be used as an educational tool in uh, school? Absolutely. Yeah, we uh, we began developing the project, and at first we we knew we just wanted to make the movie, and we we weren't sure if it would be a normal feature length film or if it'd be you know something shorter. And as we were developing, and I think part of this is because we both had backgrounds in in the education industry, um, we began reaching out to teachers. And what became clear is that uh, a movie that would be under 45 minutes would be extremely helpful to math teachers. And so as the story was developing, it began to, you know, organically to what we thought would be appropriate with taking the novel, which, you know, really when you read the book, the last 30 pages are what are your traditional narrative, and the beginning is all set up. And so we began to translate that last 30 pages of narrative, um, the page count kind of matched what teachers were telling us. And the way that I like to think about the movie is, you know, if you were to draw a line down the middle and have education on one side, entertainment on the other, I think the movie is a little bit more on the entertainment side, but we still made it with an eye towards educators because the movie is intended really to inspire young students about math and science. And, you know, teachers are always going to be the best at teaching the concepts, but we're hoping that we can use the power of cinema to help capture some minds in, into that area. Yeah, and I think the way when when we read the book in school, the book is a launching point for ideas because the idea of higher and lower dimensions and how things work is so exciting. But I, I think the same applies to the movie. When we first premiered the movie in Austin, the first hands up during the Q&A were little kids, and they wanted to know all about the fourth dimension. I mean, that's held true every time we have a public screening. Uh, you know, it just launches... Uh, a lot of discussions, and you know, I think that's where the learning starts to happen. Say in in this most recent one, there are a few examples where there is a direct mathematical content in it, specifically talking about uh, using triangulation uh, to find distance, as well as uh, just talking about triangles and, and their degree measure and. Uh, how you could have a straight line that isn't straight, but there also seems to be a lot more mathematics that's hidden. You, your backgrounds are very mathematical. There's a lot of uh, fractal imagery, and there's uh, other things that are just commented on, but not entirely spelled out. Did you purposefully Im embed those sort of things with the uh, thought that maybe it could be, say, a teaching moment for a for a teacher if some student notices that and then brings it up afterwards? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think um, we when we were first designing the world for the first movie, we, you know, this is something, Flatland was only previously adapted in a 1960s film, and it's very primitive animation. And it's, a, it's very stylistic, but there was really no texture to the world, and we were debating how we should add texture so that people aren't just looking at blocks of colors. And uh, we hit upon the idea of incorporating these fractal patterns. And, you know, it just instantly became more warm and organic. And people always ask about it afterwards. And it was really fun for me and the other artists to just, you know, experiment. We would literally zoom into the Mandelbrot fractals. I would find an interesting curve and say, oh, that, that can be a nose or that can be an eyebrow. 
or that could be part of the landscape in the background and make a really giant kind of spiral out of these fractals. And you're right, there's there's a lot more mathematical discussion in the books, uh, especially in the first book where they very slowly lay out, you know, point, line, square, cube, hypercube, and how many edges and how many faces there would be. And, you know, we, we didn't want to have a scene that was that explanatory. We figured that's the power of the teacher afterwards to kind of go and, and lead them through that progression. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, we... we there are parts of the novel that we reference just briefly. One example from the most recent book is there's a chapter in the novel Sphereland all about uh, congruence and symmetry. And there are these dogs that face both directions, these flatland dogs. One faces left and one faces right. But one is more valuable than the other. So this one person has lots of the less valuable dogs until the sphere flips them in the third dimension and they become the more expensive dogs. And, you know, it's a really fun concept, and I remember in uh, geometry class we had a good discussion about that, but it didn't quite fit in the confines of our our story that we wanted to tell. So we kind of just reference it briefly. We show these two uh, different dogs, the mongrels and pedigrees. So hopefully readers of the novel will, will instantly know what we're showing. But then the theme of congruence and symmetry, we work into the story itself. We have characters that are flipped in higher dimensions. You know, I, I think that'll get kids thinking about, you know, what if you were flipped in the fourth dimension and your left became right, right became left. So it is it is tricky. It's part of the adaptation process of, you know, figuring out what's valuable to the teachers and maybe instead of specific examples, just use it as a theme in the greater story. Oh, divine oversphere, I apologize if I have offended Divine? If I am divine for my dimensional nature, then so is every criminal and scoundrel of my kind. And whether I am a scoundrel or not, you have yet to discover. But a higher dimension implies higher knowledge and clarity. You propose a most intriguing hypothesis. Fortunately, I find experimentation irresistible. What do you mean? Oh, oh my, what have you done? Everything is, why, it's reversed. To see the universe from a new perspective is a rare gift indeed. Please, put me back to normal. How do I fix this? Serious, dear. Fixing your preconceived dimensional notions is up to you. As for your other predicament, a portal to the fourth dimension awaits at the center of Flatland. No, awaits is the wrong word. So hurry up. Be seeing you. Sirius, look out! Whenever I try to turn left, I involuntarily go right, and vice versa. It's as if the whole world has been flipped backwards. And when looking in a mirror, I notice my left and right features are reversed. Really? You look pretty symmetrical to me. We spheres get that a lot. One of the the things that I really notice uh, was changed uh, in the the first film, to be precise, is the depiction of of women. Now, when, when I read Flatland, I... 
Now, I understand that it's a satire and that, that it was playing on, on the problems of, of Vic, that Victorian women had, but the depiction of women in the original novel is, is kind of nasty. Uh, so was that something that you consciously decided that you're going to have, uh, the hero of your story be a female, given how females were portrayed in the f- original novel? Yeah, it, it, that was a very conscious decision. I mean, it was, I remember when I read the book in high school, that was a big part of the conversation about the book was issues of, of not only gender, but also I think classism. And that the book itself is a commentary on Victorian society in England um, in the 19th century. When we began to develop the script from a creative standpoint, at first we tried to stay, you know, stick to as true as the book as possible. However, for 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 our modern world to depict women in that way requires requires a lot of explanation. And at a certain point, we made the decision this was going to be a bath movie, not a movie on history. And there are some really good points in you know in commenting on Victorian society. But at the end of the day, we didn't have enough time in the story to tell, make all those points. So we decided to keep it focused on mathematics. And then in addition, I mean, there is an unfortunate um, discrepancy among female, the perception of females in mathematics. And that's something that we have heard a lot of from teachers saying that needs work on. And so by making our heroine a female, we thought that would be a great way to show to young female students that there is a place for them in the mathematics world and to further encourage them to pursue their interest in mathematics. Yeah, and I'll just add that from a design perspective, when we were working on the first movie, you know, here I was trying to design these flatlanders and then on top of that, making these line women, we, you know, we tried putting little eyes on them and a little mouth and it looked like, it, it just looked ridiculous. And here we were trying to get you know, Hollywood talent, Kristen Bell and other actresses involved in the, uh, in the movie. And I thought, you know, this, it's just not going to work. It's not going to look great. And, uh, at, like Seth said, the most important part of the story, uh, you know, we, we wanted to focus on the math. The more we tried to fit in kind of a civil rights <laughs> angle to the story, it, you know, it just wasn't working. So, but we're really glad that uh, you know people like Hex in the first movie, and she was a, a natural pick for the to be the focus of the the second movie. Now uh, you you mentioned that you were going for Hollywood talent. You got it in the first movie, as you mentioned. You have Kristen Bell. You also had Martin Sheen, and the uh, most recent movie you have uh, one of my favorite actors, uh, Danny Pudi from Community. And I, I was I'm a, I'm assuming that. You you're not working on on a massive uh, budget for these for these films. Uh, so I was wondering how you were able to bring in talent like that to do the voices. The, the number one thing is that all the talent we work with is extremely generous with their time, and they do this because they're into the project. They do this because they're excited, you know, to be a part of it. And so we feel really fortunate. And when you know, everyone that we asked to come back on the on the sequel did come back. We got to add in some new fantastic actors. Danny Pudi, who has a lot of teachers in his family, has, has a really, really strong respect for education and was so excited to be a part of it. And on the DVD, if, uh, if you watch it, he has an amazing behind the scenes. It's really funny and cool. But in terms of also, I think another 
key key way that we're able to make sure that we get top talent is that we only use absolute minimum of their time, which means, uh, especially for Dano, a lot of prep work. We actually record the, the, the entire scripts multiple times um, with friends of ours, with, with other and, and other actors, and cut it together and do and do simple animation animatics, um, so that when we get the actors that are going to be reading for the parks, we record only the lines that we need, and it helps it go a lot faster. So it, it maximizes their time, and the preparation really pays off. I, I do I do want to get a little bit more into the the making of this specifically what kind of uh reaction did you get when you were initially trying to make this film and then how did that reaction change after the the first one came out and it seemed I mean I've I've seen mention of the original uh, Flatland the movie many times now over the last few years so it seemed to do pretty well was uh, it easier to get this one made than it was the first one <laughs> you know it's a, it's a great question I, I think in some ways it certainly was you know for the first film th- there were a lot of challenges in the sense of we had no idea of what a two-dimensional world would look like and we, we kind of had to define a lot of the design and, and you know I think it's also important to mention um, Jeffrey Travis who was who was a co-writer and director on the first movie and served as our executive producer on the sequel. And him, me and Dano, I mean, we spent countless hours. Dano and I and Jeffrey have gone back and looked at some of the original ideas we have. And there, it was actually a much longer creative process to get the first movie made. But, but the content, Flatland the Book, has so many fans. And um, especially once we were able to attach the cast that we had, that there was definitely a lot of anticipation and I think appetite for it. Uh, with the sequel, it was great because we'd already kind of established ourselves in, in the space of doing the math education videos. H- however, the Spherland, the book, there's a big difference in that it, it, it is actually not in the public domain. The copyright is still held. So in order, the first steps in getting that, um, in a creative sense, were actually somewhat simpler. I mean, Dano had mentioned Spherland to me, I think in the first conversation when we talked about Flatland, he had expressed interest in doing a Spherland movie and, and, you know, his creative juices were already flowing in terms of the story and, and were already really exciting. But we, it took us almost over a year on the kind of legal and logistical front to secure the rights. I uh, ended up going to Belgium where I met with the author's daughter and she ended up being extremely helpful with helping us to secure the rights from, from the U.S. publisher who had it. It's kind of every project kind of has its own difficulties and so I think on the for two very similar movies our challenges in getting them made were actually extremely different yeah I think uh, from just an animation perspective the first one was our that was our research and development we figured out what worked uh, you know we made some mistakes we we waited until really the last half of production to get going on the 3d scenes there's about seven minutes of 3d scenes and you know, we felt very rushed near the end. We were trying to complete all these things. What we learned is for the second movie, we we put all the 3D stuff up front in the beginning. Uh, And it was fortunate because we recorded Michael York, uh, who plays Furious, first. So I was really able to block out those scenes and start working with the 3D animators early on. And really, we had most of those done by, you know, early earlier this year, January, we were wrapping up a lot of the 3D stuff. So, you know, we, we learned some things and then other things became harder that we didn't expect because in the second movie there's almost 15 minutes of 3D. So, you know, there's even more environments that we need and 
we worked with a programmer to develop this tool that would allow us to make the 4D geometry that you see near the end of the movie. But then we kept uh, having trouble finding a person to do that animation who could use the tool and knew what he was doing. So, you know, on a shoestring budget, you know, we're pretty much limited to somebody who has know-how and the time. And uh, we found a great animator actually in Germany, Christian Kohlhaas, who uh, did the 4D geometry you see at the end. And it's amazing that, you know, just with the Internet, I've never met him. I talked to him on Skype once, and we just communicated through email and, you know, uploading uploading movie files across the Internet. Really, the animation has really changed over the last, you know, 20 years and that you can do stuff like that. I was wondering if you found yourself uh, coming out with with any sort of lessons about uh, how to communicate mathematics that you might be able to uh, give to any of my listeners. Because, yeah, I mean, you came into this to this as as movie people, but now you are math movie people. And so I was wondering if, if there's anything that you uh, learned that might be of interest. I mean, for me, what I learned, and I think what, what, yeah, what I've taken away from it is that the, the math itself can be extremely fascinating and interesting, but it's how it's applied to people that I think truly makes it, it truly, truly what captures people, people's attention is that at the end of the day, it's about, you know, individuals and their life experience and relationships and the challenges we all face. And because math is such a big deal and it's everywhere in the world, it affects so much of our life on a daily basis, but it's what it affects in our life that I think the consequences of it that I think will really draw people in emotionally and understand the necessity of math. You know, in terms of the actual programs and, and the actual numbers, they're extremely important, but I think Focusing on the emotion and the people is what's going to get people's attention with math. Yeah, I really wrote the, the screenplay for Spheerland as kind of a love letter to science in a way. And science and math in terms of how they allow us to find our place in the universe. I mean, Hex essentially through the plot, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> you know, discovers the shape of her universe and her place within it. You know, I approached her as, you know, a, a I wanted to portray a scientist in a very positive light that they use their tools not just to solve problems and build things, but to to really help define the world. And yeah, I I hope people take that away from it. I do want to thank you for the uh, the greatest uh, line that I've I, that I've heard in a movie or television show or radio drama or anything in in quite a long time, which is. Uh, when Hex in Spheerland uh, screams out, Look, I'd love to write all this up for a peer-reviewed journal, but there's no time! <laughs> well, I'm glad. Uh, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, <laughs> I thought somebody, uh, some people would appreciate that. That usually gets a good laugh at the, uh, we go to these math teacher conferences and show the movie, and that gets a good chuckle. So, <laughs> Before jumping into the next interview, I wanted to tell y'all one more time just how cool Curvahedra is. You may remember from when I talked about it last episode that Curvahedra was created by Rel Prime guest and founding backer Edmund Harris. But do you also remember that Curvahedra is a construction puzzle system which can be used to create a bunch of different 3D structures from identical pieces, all of which link together without the aid of glue or tape? Well, if you want to find out even more about Curvahedra and 
Trust me, you do. Or really, if you're just already sold and want to have some Curvahedra of your own, all you have to do is head on over to Curvahedra.com. That is C-U-R-B-A-H-E-D-R-A dot C-O-M. I promise you're not going to regret it. And now, let's hear my conversation with Christopher Boone, the person behind the Kickstarter-funded movie Sense. And quick disclaimer, I was one of the Kickstarter backers for the movie. We began by discussing what Sense was all about. The logline for Sense is um, Sense is a story about Sammy Baca, a crazy smart 12-year-old girl who uses her gift for mathematics and enlists her frenemies to revamp the school penny drive into a major money-making operation. At the same time, uh, Sammy kind of struggles with her single mom, Angela, who's trying to keep her from making the same mistakes she did. And she's also kind of keeping her teacher and her mentor, Miss Dyer, at arm's length, even though Miss Dyer's just trying to stretch Sammy's mathematical capabilities. So at the core, we've really got four girls and their relationships with each other, how they make choices, bad choices that kind of circle back around, back around on them. And at the center of all of it is Sammy, who, again, is this um, really smart mathematical genius doing calculus in seventh grade, but she's also an outcast and a troublemaker. And she's always looking for a new angle to kind of make a little bit of money to kind of keep up with the rest of her uh, classmates, as it were. So yeah, so girls, math, bullying, kind of all mixed into one. So where did you initially come up with the idea for the movie? You know, it wasn't just one idea. I think it was over a course of a number of years. I, I did have an idea that I wanted to incorporate math into a story for a while, and I, just just something I wanted to do. I loved math growing up, uh, but I didn't pursue it <laughs> after school. But I thought it would be great if there was some way I could incorporate math into a character or story. I thought that would be really interesting. And at one point in time, I had remembered a riddle that a math teacher had told me, which was the penny a day riddle. And it was, you know, if I give you a million dollars or a penny on the first day of the month, two pennies on the second day of the month, and keep doubling the previous day's amount of pennies for the rest of the month, which do you choose? And that riddle obviously had been told in many different ways, the grains of rice on a chessboard. Uh, but I thought that was just fascinating, uh, that geometric series and how it grows exponentially. Just thought it was really cool. It's always stuck with me. And that, that popped into my head one day. I thought that might be interesting structurally. Separate from that, uh, I had been thinking about what my next story was going to be as I was working on a new script idea. And, and I have a daughter who is now almost 12. And this was a few years ago. So she was much younger, maybe seven or eight. And being a dad and having no idea what it was going to be like for her to hit adolescence, I uh, started doing a lot of research about that and reading a bunch of books. And as I was reading those books about middle school girls, I, I was just blown away by the world now and how they interact with each other and treat each other with language and, and looks. And now with social media, it just takes it to another level, how you can quickly send a tweet or a Facebook post and you don't have to see the person in, you know, face to face and can really kind of just destroy their lives. That was really scary to me as a dad, but it was really intriguing to me as a storyteller. So I thought, gosh, that would be a great world to, to explore. And I learn a lot when I write scripts. So I really want to learn more about it. So I wanted to explore that world. And, I, and then I tried to figure out a character within that world. And I wanted it to be somebody who's a bit on the outside, maybe had been burned in the past. And Somebody who'd be really intriguing, but what was going to make her different and special? And then that's why I thought, well, what if she was just 
off the charts smart at math. And that's not to be expected from this person. Like nobody would know this about this character and she would keep it a secret. And I thought that would be interesting. Okay, great. So she's good at math. I've got the world that I want to set the story in, but how am I going to propel the story forward? And that's when I remembered the riddle again. So this would be actually something interesting to structure a plot around this geometric series, knowing that it's possible to do what our character does, but highly improbable. And I thought, gosh, that would be really interesting. What if somebody actually tries to, to implement this in real life? And if she could convince other people to get on board, because it would start so small and so slow and actually seem achievable. I thought that would be really interesting. So all those things kind of came together at different times over kind of a couple year period. And once those pieces fell into place, then I really felt like I had a story. You mentioned, of, of course, Sammy and, and Angela, the, the, daughter and and mother uh, in in the movie and one thing that struck me as as really interesting watching the film was that you you have the mother uh, quite publicly and quite uh, strongly going after uh, her dream of getting into medical school and then you have Sammy quite privately doing very well at mathematics and the mother is struggling publicly whereas Sammy's doing very very well privately. And so I was wondering why you had the uh, person who who is gifted and it's easy being the person who's hiding it, uh, whereas the person who's struggling, which most people tend to try to hide when they're struggling, uh, is, is doing it so publicly. That's a really good question. I've actually, I've never thought about it that way. So, <laughs> but no, that's a, real, uh, that's a really interesting take. I think a reason why I can definitely talk about the reason why Sammy hides it is um, being 12 is hard. <laughs> and Unfortunately, I think, uh, at least in my personal experience, and then also just observing a lot of 12-year-olds, I've, I've been able to actually work on some short film projects with kids of that age, and so get to see them in their natural habitats. And now, like I said, my daughter's almost 12. It's really tough when you're at that edge of adolescence and you are the world your world is starting to change things aren't as rosy maybe as they have been if you've been lucky to have a really good childhood as i did um you start to see things changing and things that you thought were one way or aren't and you're trying to figure out who you are and how you fit in and i think a lot of times kids around that age just want to fit in they don't want to stick out if anything about them is different even if they're really talented at something you know especially if it's something like maybe math. And unfortunately, there might be other kids who might make fun of you for being really smart at that. You want to keep it under wraps. I think that's terrible. It's actually a reason I want to make a movie like this. I don't want anybody, whatever their talent is, to hide it. And, and, and so when you are starting to figure out that you might be very good at something, but that makes you very different from your peers, I want you to go after it and celebrate it and, and, you know, and, and embrace that passion. So I hope that our character, Sammy, maybe beyond this film, would emerge that way. Why her mom is more public is, um, I think her mom is, uh, has struggled for a long time and her mom is young. And if you, if you do the math in our film and if you really pay attention to it and she mentions her, her age when she had Sammy and she's only 28 and her daughter's 12. So she was a young mom. This wasn't expected. And yet she jumped into this with both feet and has done everything she can to take care of her daughter. And so for her, it's always been about proving herself to her daughter. And that's been really important. But also by proving herself, she wants to make the best life she can for them. And, and every step of the way for her, it feels like has been a struggle and nobody seems to want to help her. And so she always is fighting against that. So I think for her, a lot of her drive is, you don't believe I can do this. And she even says that nobody thinks she can do these things. And that for her is why she has to do it and why she has to do it publicly as well. It's because nobody believes in her and she just has to prove all of them wrong.
so she can prove it to herself and prove it to her daughter. You you mentioned this this kind of weird fear of sometimes showing talents that could help you be made fun of, and I I was a I, I, it didn't bear out in the end, but I was a talented mathematical youth, and that did even in a small school, like did lead to lead to some some bullying, some some making fun of. Uh, probably a little bit less uh, because of the male female dynamic. It's a little bit more okay for boys to be good at math, sadly. Uh, but I was wondering, uh, since I mean, you you filmed this with young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering what their reactions were to to a math-heavy uh, story, to, to playing, uh, I mean, the girl who played Sammy, but um, even the other characters as well, to a, to a story that kind of revolves around uh, young younger women in mathematics. Well, all the girls in our film are, were, are very close in age to the characters that they play. I mean, they were all 12 and 13 when we filmed, with the exception of one who had just turned 15 but looks younger. And actually, those that had actually recently gone through seventh grade had told me, this is exactly what seventh grade was like. <laughs> and it was this thing of, of like, I, we, I, I, they still couldn't actually make sense of the uh, fact that friends would turn on each other. And it happened, not, it happened in their own lives and you, they don't really understand why. And that was a big thing for me too, is I really think at that age, you're so self-absorbed that you can't see two inches in front of your face. And so we try to actually play around with that visually with really shallow depth of field in the film. And most people won't really pick that up, but that was a conscious decision. But as far as their reaction to math, I'll say that uh, they're all very smart girls, but none of them were necessarily all into math. I think they're all very good students. But I think they thought it was intriguing, this idea of taking what seems to be a very simplistic equation and then trying to implement it in the real world with a penny drive and see where it takes them. But they, they liked how it, the, the plot hung on that. But I think what they related to more than anything was really the relationships of, of the characters. And you can substitute math for something else that somebody might be really good at and somebody wants to tear you down. And, and so I think it's uh, what I hope uh, for all, all audiences, both young and, and adults, is that they see it as a, an engaging film and it provokes them into conversations and it gets them talking about, well, why do we do that? Why do some people feel the need to tear each other, tear somebody else down? And why do we turn to things like social media to do that? And if we can start talking about those things, maybe we can come up with better ways for both youth and adults too to, to interact with each other and also find ways to celebrate, like I said, those passions and, and not be scared to share those talents. And, and again, look for opportunities to shine, essentially, and bring other people along with you instead of tearing everybody else down. And you, you've mentioned the, the bullying aspect of this film a few times. And one thing that I found very interesting is that everyone in the story is guilty. <laughs> they're, they're, and, and also a victim. Like there are, There's no one who's a hero, no one who's a villain when it comes to the kind of tearing it down. And, and so it's, is that just because that's how you, I mean, it's, it's just because that's how you see the real world is working? Well, I, I think that's the way I see the real world, but also as I was doing the research for it too, both, you know, reading a lot of books and articles, um, talking to uh, people who've done a lot of research around bullying, and then just watching the kids and, and interacting with them and talking to them, asking questions. I, I never feel like it's ever truly a, a black and white situation where it's just a bully and a victim. Oh, individual instances definitely might be that way, but I think 
we all need to admit at some point in time that we have probably engaged in this behavior as well as a bully, even if we don't feel good about the fact that we did that. And we have almost certainly all been bystanders. We have almost certainly all watched somebody get bullied and not said anything and not stood up for the person or not talked to the bully and asked them why they're doing that. And, um, and so I just wanted to, to, to create a story where, yes, all of these characters, all four of these characters will play all of those roles. And then the real question becomes, once you recognize that behavior in yourself, can you make a different choice and can you redeem yourself? Can you make amends? Because you might not be able to, but what, what happens when you actually, what happens when the consequences essentially circle back around and hit you? And then you have to really look carefully at the choices that you've made. And I just think that makes for a more interesting story. It makes the characters themselves more dynamic. I think it makes them more human. And in fact, um, you know, we do have one character, Hannah, who was, is the queen bee character and definitely the, the click leader, more the traditional mean girl. And we get to see all the characters in their homes. And there is a scene of Hannah that we actually had to cut, we cut out of the film for a couple of reasons. But in that scene, she actually has an interaction with her mother. And it's, we see Hannah in a very different light. And we start to understand maybe a little bit about why she is the way she is because of her relationship with her mother. But the reason we cut it out for the film, of film for a couple of reasons. One, it slowed things down. It was a little long. That's my fault as a writer. Two, it actually showed up too early in the story. And in the script stage, nobody picked that up, myself included. And then we shot it. And when we assembled the film, I asked the editor, why is this scene here? And he said, that's, that's where it is in the script. I'm like, you're crazy. No, it doesn't belong here in the story. And, he, and he's like, no, look at your script. I mean, I honestly wrote the script and thought this was going to come in like the second third of the film, not right where it showed up. So it just showed up too soon. And then when we did a test screening for 300 6th and 7th graders, they actually wanted that character of Hannah to be meaner. So they saw the version of the film where we see the interaction with her mother and we humanized her. And they said, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I want to not like her. They wanted one character they could really kind of sink their teeth into. And, and the, the, at the point, there's a point in the film where the character, she storms out of a classroom and they started to cheer. And at the time, I didn't have their comment cards, so I didn't know if they really liked her or if they just hated her and they liked to hate her. Um, and I, even though we took that scene out, um, the, the way that character's final scene is played, most people might not pick up, but, but there's some ambivalence in the way the actress, Jai Prashkulnik, plays Hannah's last scene, and we had talked a lot about it. So it can be read a couple different ways. And I think there's a hint of humanity in the way she plays that final scene. But hopefully someday we'll have a deleted scene and people can actually see that. No, Hannah's not all bad. You don't, I mean, even, even Hannah's not, not all bad, uh, but the main character is, is just as much not, not all good. So uh, on my notes that I wrote down while watching, uh, you have a main character who's a 12-year-old who's incredibly flawed. <laughs> she lies, she steals, uh, she makes bad choices. And that, that seems like a, um, I mean, it seems true. I mean, it's 12-year-olds are not, not perfect angels. Uh, I think that stops at around 12 weeks uh, instead of 12 years. But I was, I was wondering where you, where you, um, where, when you became sure that it would, would be okay to treat a character that young in, in a way that a lot of, a lot of movies won't, they won't start treating character in that way until they're, you know, at least high school. Right. Um, well, I, part of me was, I, I wanted to create a story that I thought was realistic and naturalistic portrayal of kids of this age. And I think, a lot of times when you see films where maybe the protagonists are the age of 12, 
they they don't feel like they're 12 to me. They they might speak in a hyper-realistic fashion. Um, they're a little too witty, I think. Um, you know, they're just a little, too, maybe a little too perfect. And then, and then they're faced with an obstacle, but they themselves are, I don't know, maybe really wholesome or really good. And yes, hopefully if you've written a good story, those, those characters will make some mistakes, you know, but interesting characters to me are really flawed characters. And so the more flawed the character, the more interesting the character and the more opportunities I think you have as a storyteller to explore uh, those flaws and then how are they going to overcome those flaws over the course of the story. And sometimes they're not, they're not going to. So I, I feel like the, the character, all four of the characters are, are based in reality. So I didn't worry so much about whether or not they had flaws or not. My concern was, can I get an audience to want to go on the ride with our protagonist when she is lying and stealing? <laughs> and that was a really tricky balance. And, and some people may argue with me that I might not accomplish it. But I think because she's also really strong at math and she is this outsider, she, it makes her interesting. And we wonder why she's stealing and we wonder why she's lying and we wonder why she's hiding her talents. And because we're wondering all these things, I, I hope it pulls the audience into the story and gets you really into her world. And even if she is making mistakes, you're still rooting for her. She's definitely a protagonist. She's definitely a, 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 in the hero mold. She's not an anti-hero in any sense of the word. But we have to see how far we can push her so that you still want to stay with her. And I've had some people say, like, I, you know, I just didn't, more adults than kids actually say, I just didn't like the fact that she was stealing well, she is. <laughs> so, you know, um, but see the movie and, you know, people have asked me, they've seen the trailer and they haven't seen the film. They ask, well, does she redeem herself? And I said, you know, that's, that's a big question. So, you know, come see the movie and see if she does. And honestly, I, I think every audience member has to kind of answer that question for themselves. But I do we do have a story where we give the character a chance. And I think it has a hopeful ending. I mean, I know I've had people ask me, you know, is it at least hopeful? And I said, yes, I, I do think it's hopeful in the end. Um, but you can't have a character who's perfect. It doesn't, just doesn't make for a good story. I, I, can, I can reiterate, I did not walk away leaving sad. <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, and... One thing, I mean, and this this is just because I'm a nerd, but I love that the character's entry into being a part of the in group, the the popular kick. It's just that she's good at math, and she it, it's not it's not sold exactly like that, but it's that she the idea that she has uh, for the penny drive is is straight from math, and and I love the idea of a character just like, oh no, I can I can leverage this thing, and and that's true for getting into friend groups quite often. It's just, I just love that it, that it really was mathematics that did it. That's great to hear. I mean, uh, and, and it is one of those things I had to figure out, like how is she going to work her way into this group? And yeah, and she's, she's definitely going to use math, but at the same time, she's pretty wily as well. She knows she can, she, she might be able to convince some members of this clique to go along with her a little bit easier than others. But yeah, it, math is definitely at the core of her her plan, and definitely at the core of the plot. And it's one of those things that was really it was a, also that was a really tricky balance as well because I wanted to write a story about math, but at, as much as people like yourself obviously are big, big, big into math, 
the audience as a whole doesn't want to go to a movie and solve math problems. Oh, that, that's true. So, that's very true. So, I, <laughs> and yeah. so the, 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 one of the things I really had to figure out was, okay, this movie, the story is built around this equation, but how do we do it in a way that we're not asking you to solve anything? We're just, we're bringing you along for the ride and you understand it to the degree you need to understand it so we can keep the story moving. And at certain points in the story, we're going to also have to bring it back around to the math to explain why things work the way they do and why they might not work the way it was initially proposed. And how do we do this by literally not literally going to the board and doing a math equation? So how to be really visual with it and also, again, uh, bring in confusion and conflict. And I, I quite literally structured the story using, you know, a spreadsheet and looking at the equation and figuring out, okay, what day are we in the penny drive? What would be happening right now? Okay, how would the girls be feeling about it based on how much they've collected at this point, when is it going really well and when is it all falling apart? And so math truly drove my creative decisions as we were putting it together. And I look at other films that um, either have math or something mathematical or scientific in them and, and how they've done it. So a great example, recent example is The Imitation Game. I literally just had my daughter watch it yesterday. And um, okay, you've got Alan Turing cracking the Enigma code. And I challenge anyone to watch that movie and tell me the math behind it. <laughs> and you don't want to see the math, but you do want to see all the diagrams that he's drawing. And you do want to see the construction of this great big machine with the cables and the dials. And you want to see him give this test to all these people to see who can come on board. And you want to hear him say it only, you know, it takes him eight minutes. So there's no way anyone can solve this problem that we never see. And Kara Knightley's character come up and solve it in the six minutes, under the six minutes that he's you know, given to us. And as an audience, we're, we're with you. We're totally on board. And that had not come out, obviously, when I was working on this. So I didn't have that as a model. But I think of other movies like Searching for Bobby Fischer. And I understand how chess pieces move, but I actually never got in the chess. And it doesn't matter. I don't need to know how to play chess. And I am completely enthralled in that movie because they've made it so dramatic. And I can see what's going on. And they've shown me just enough that I pick up I know in this final chess match why the boy is going to win, and it's still really exciting. And again, I still don't know how to play chess. So it's, it's things like that. How can you make a, a mathematical or a scientific um, subject really interesting to your audience, and yet they don't feel like they necessarily learned uh, or, or had to solve a math equation. And what was really funny is my wife, she's read the script, but she didn't see the film until it was all done and, and locked and with uh, our private premiere screening for cast and crew and Kickstarter VIPs. And she said, well, there's more math in it than I expected. And I said, oh, no, was there too much math? She said, oh, no, 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 not at all. But I was actually surprised at how much you were actually able to bring it into the story and keep everything moving along and not feel like, again, I was doing homework. So that was great. And she is uber smart when it comes to math. So I was like, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> and that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank Dano, Seth, and Chris for taking time out of their busy lives to speak with me. You can find links to their movies and their other work on the show page for this episode on Rel Prime. Com. I also want to thank Lowercase N for the music that I'm talking over now and that you heard in other places in this episode. You can find more of their music over at lowercase n.bandcamp.com.
But most of all, most of all, I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon. Without y'all, this show would not, could not, definitely would not exist. Really, without y'all, there's no way that this episode or any of season three of Relatively Prime would have ever been put out. And if you want to join them in supporting the show, head on over to patreon.com slash relprime or relprime.com slash support. Finally, Relatively Prime is created under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike license. So please, please, pretty, pretty, please, this has only happened once as far as I know, make a remix out of these words. Do it. Do it. I (laughs) promise to love it. Uh, As long as you make sure to say that the words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank you for listening. And as always, have a math-rific week, y'all. <laughs>